You can be turning to Revelation chapter 3. One thing I love about Central are the children. Uh, and I say that with all seriousness, having 10 grandchildren myself, several of which are here. But uh, I don't know if you notice, like during the Lord's Supper, when it's the quietest time, or supposed to be the quietest time, there's this nice little rumbling in the background of children. And none of them being bad, none of them are, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to correct anyone, I'm actually trying to encourage this. The, just to hear them and to hear them here is of great encouragement to me. And it reminds me of, you know, Jesus, the uh, thought came to my mind of Jesus saying, I, you know, bring the little children to me. And if we, if we call the little children, we ought to be expecting a little noise. I heard one child during the uh, passing of the bread say, Daddy, it's yummy. It's yummy. <laughs> and I thought, you know, it is yummy. Um, I'm not talking about the taste of the bread. It, it is, well, physically, it is a yummy piece of, of uh, bread. But in a child's way, it's, it's yummy. I mean, if you think about what that represents, it not only represents something that causes, you know, a grief in us, too, that, that the Son of God had to die for us. Yeah, that, that causes grief. But what he has done for us, grace, that's yummy. So I'm thankful for that little lesson that I received from a child today, that it's yummy. And so as I take that bread, next time I may think, it's so yummy, that God, what God has done for us. If you're visiting with us uh, and haven't been here before, we're going through Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3. And we're, I've entitled this The Lampstand at, at Central, because in, in this section... Uh, the churches, the seven churches of Asia, are represented as lampstands, lights. And I believe those lights represent us. We can look at ourselves. And in each of these churches that we've looked at, I have seen myself. I've seen this church in one way or another. And we're going into the city of Sardis today. And back in April, I made a, a, a trip through uh, this area. And I'm going to utilize a few videos. I've been using some of the videos and I'll explain those as we come. But you know, as I think as we read through the Bible, read through these seven churches of Asia, read through the book of Acts, and we hear the names of the places the different apostles went to, it, we just kind of hear them in an abstract way. It's just names. You know, what, 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 where is that? What is that? It, was, it would be as if I were to say, um, so I left Suva, I went through Nasori, I passed through Rakiraki on the way to Ba. And... 98% of you have no idea what I just said, right? A, a handful, a very small handful, can imagine going around the King's Road on the north side of the island of Vitilevu and going through these different cities. But it's just abstract names to you. And one of, my, one of the things I'm trying to do as we look at these places is to say, these are real places. These were real people. These were our brothers and sisters, and they went through different struggles that we go through. And so I want you to, to root yourself into reality. And one of the reasons I'm bringing these videos, and I'm just, I'm totally uncomfortable seeing my, myself on the big screen, but to bring you these videos 
is to show you this was, these were solid, real places. And we're talking about real Christians. And the first time they heard this letter read, they had real emotional reactions to them. Let me show you a map. And I know some don't like maps, but I think a lot of people do. It gives you a sense of, of reality where we are. When the gospel was originally preached in Jerusalem, down there where at the bottom right-hand corner of your screen, it says Judea. That's the province where Jerusalem was. And the gospel was preached there, and then it began to spread out. It went to Samaria, up there where Decapolis is, is around, the, um, around Galilee. In that area is, uh, is uh, Samaria. And then it went up north to Antioch. You see that Antioch? There are several Antiochs in that area, but this is the Antioch uh, where a church was established that sent out Paul and Barnabas. And then you'll see it going all the way over to what we call Turkey today or Asia Minor uh, in their day and time where Ephesus was. And this is the, was the spread of the gospel. Later on it went into to Greece, which is the next country over. You see the boot over there. That's Italy. Uh, it went through uh, Europe. And so this is, was the spread of the gospel. Now the Bible doesn't, this is biblical church history. We don't know much about, or we do know much, but we're not going to have a church history lesson where the gospel also went south. It also went to, to Egypt. It also went east to Mesopotamia and it went to India. It spread throughout the whole world, but when we come to the book of Acts and we read the letters, most of it happened in this, this area here, and a huge portion of our letters that we have in the, in the New Testament of the work that was done was in the area where you see Ephesus, you see Asia there, which is the country that we call Turkey today. Um, the way the gospel spread was through roads. Roads were being built you know, during that time. Uh, during the Roman era, it was really extended. Uh, uh, safe roads, good roads were made. But way back in about 540, when Cyrus the Great took over the world, he was over in Mesopotamia area, he built a road, and we put that up there, that's about 1,500 miles long. It did not go straight as that era does. It went throughout that area, 1,500 miles from Susa, the capital of Persia, all the way to Ephesus. And that's important because that road and the branches of those roads were the roads that the gospel was, was people walked on these roads and went to these places. Uh, these roads brought Paul and Timothy, Titus, Philip, John, Peter, Andrew, Apollos, Aquila, Priscilla, Thaddeus, all down through these roads. And I want you to just try and root yourself in the reality of, of people that we don't know much about. Thaddeus lived and died in Turkey, brought the gospel there. Timothy worked in Ephesus, taught the gospel there. And so um, I'm, I'm trying to decide whether to read the scripture. Let's, let's go ahead and read the scripture. Let's read the scripture first. And then I want to show you a, a video that is, that's just full of mistakes, all right? Full of, and, and really it's going to make me look a little foolish. Uh, I almost didn't put it up, but I thought, uh, you need to laugh, so we're going we're gonna to go ahead and put this up. And the reason for the video is to show you 
the place of Sardis and the reality of it, and, and you can see me walking through and making mistakes and going, what is, what is this and what is that? And we'll, we'll see it in a minute. But let's, let's anchor ourselves in the first six verses of Revelation 3. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will know it, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. All right, I'm going to endure a minute and a half of a video. Be entertained or, or whatever. But let's, let's go into Sardis here. I'm in Sardis now. And this is um, the back part of, I think, a church building. I'm going to find out. I'm going to go down here. Uh, this is virtually empty, but a big bus came uh, of uh, school children. So they're being shown around, and some, I'm sure I'm going to bump into them pretty soon. But uh, I'm sure this is part, I'm guessing, part of the church building, but I'll find out when I get to the other side. Uh, I think I was wrong. I don't think it's a church building. I don't think it's a church building unless church buildings had swimming pools. And, and this is a swimming pool. And this needs no water. Uh, this is uh, part of a swimming pool. Some sure is part of the the Roman era. And maybe they swam laps. You could swim. You could swim laps in a pool this size. <laughs> but it's not that deep. You couldn't dive in. You wouldn't want to dive in deep. <laughs> okay, before all the kids, school kids get here. I was watching your reaction. <laughs> real people. This is a real place. Real people. They sneezed. They had, they, you know, that's why I wasn't saying anything. I was trying to quell a sneeze and I couldn't and they just came out. So, but I wanted you to see that place. This is a real, that was a Roman gymnasium. That's where people worked, uh, people worked out and it was also a school. Um, and they did, I guess they did swim laps in their pool, whatever. But that's, that's a, a real place. And I want to look at Sardis. And the reason I want you to look at this, uh, why I give a little history, is because 
you're going to hear echoes. And if you were listening to the reading of the scripture, as I'm telling you some of the history, you'll go, oh, I bet you that that's what they were thinking. And we'll uh, continue a little bit next week. But I'm thinking about these Christians sitting down listening to this letter. They're listening to the letter. It's being read. They didn't, it wasn't a copy wasn't given to them. But there was a reader who read the letter to them. And they've already heard what has been said about uh, Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira. They've heard what the, was said about these churches. And they must have been thinking, oh, now it's our turn. Now the, Jesus is going to talk to us. What's he going to say? What will, what, what, how will he commend us? Uh, what corrections will he have? How, how is he going to analyze this church? And Sardis had a great history. And it's important, as I said, to know a little of this history so we can hear the, the cultural echoes uh, uh, that, that uh, are attached to this letter. The area is called Lydia. The province that Sardis was in was Lydia. It's like Huntsville, Alabama. It's Sardis, Lydia. All right? So it gives you an idea. Will Durant said Lydia is brilliant capital Sardis was a clearinghouse for the traffic in goods and ideas between Mesopotamia, that's all the way out in Persia, and the Greek cities on the coast, all the way to Ephesus and all the Greek cities there. And so there was this road that came through uh, Sardis, and ideas came into this area, uh, money came into this area, commerce came into this area. So there was a lot of activity that was going on uh, in, in here. Uh, so much so that around 680 BC, the Lydian government issued uh, coins that were government guaranteed coins. First time it ever happened in history. Before that, you bartered. Now, I have a cow. What do you, can you give me for a cow? I'm not going to take a handful of beans unless I'm jacking the beans off. But, you know, it's this bartering system. But they said, you know, that doesn't work well. And so they started issuing gold coins. And Durant also said this had, as, uh, had such a great effect on the world as much as the alphabet did, as much as writing did. And so this was a new thing to have coins and to, and to trade uh, goods with, uh, with money. This uh, major trade route that came through encouraged this. They also invented a method of dyeing wool. And the river that came through the city, right through the city area, had gold in it. And because it had gold, it was a wealthy place, a very wealthy place. And that's why they minted all their coins in gold. You may have heard the expression, rich as Croesus. Rich as Croesus. It doesn't, it looks like Croesus or something, but it's Croesus. This was their most famous king. This is Mount Tumulus, which is, you're, we're standing in the, um, the uh, uh, temple area, the Temple of Artemis, which I'll mention a minute ago. The, the first city was built 1,500 feet up there. Uh, uh, against that mountain, another thousand feet above it. Uh, this this uh, city um, had walls. Uh, on three sides were these perpendicular uh, mountain range. And so they felt secure, they felt safe. Uh, immense sense of security in the city of Sardis. When the Persian king Cyrus came in about 540 or so, can't remember the exact date. He began his conquest of the world, coming from the east, going west, conquering everyone in, uh, in front of him. 
uh, Croesus went out and met him in the plains with his army, their armies, and they had this battle, and uh, Croesus retreated. Well, he retreated to his, re- to his retreat, to his cit- citadel up there, and he was secure. I mean, here, here, how, what are they going to do? Because there was one path into the city that was so narrow and, and, tur- and twisting and turning and everything that one man basically could hold off a ho- whole army. They could just knock him off if there was a good fighter, and, and if he got killed, someone would come right behind him. So there was only one way into the city. Cyrus laid siege 14 days, and during that time, he offered a great reward. He said, if anyone can figure out how to get in there, and he had some great reward that I'm not sure what it was. There was a certain soldier that w- really wanted it, I guess, and he's sitting there trying to figure it out. And he's at the bottom of this cliff and the wall up there. And, he, and, and one of the soldiers on the, on the wall dropped his helmet. I don't know if it's a bunch of guys fooling around like we do today and someone slapped him in the head and the, the, <laughs> probably something like that. And his helmet goes off, bounces down the bottom there near where this particular soldier is. And about 15 minutes later, that soldier shows up. He's getting his helmet. I guess he'd get in trouble if he didn't have his helmet. And so he thought, hmm, if there's a way down, there's a way up. And he watched how he went up and how he went up the cliff. And he goes, ah, that's how we can get in. That night, he took in a contingent of soldiers. They went up that, that cliff, up the small path, the area they could climb in, went over the wall. And guess what? Nobody's there. They were so secure, they were so confident that no one could get up there, that there was no one there. And they took the city, and interestingly, 200 years later, when there were two Greek, when the Greeks were battling over who was going to be in charge after Alexander the Great died, a Greek, uh, one of the Greek generals had taken that city and was in there, and the very same thing happened. They were secure, they felt like no one could take over, and they... In the night, climbed up, took the city uh, with, hardly, with hardly a fight. Uh, we're going to see this mountain, Mount Tumulus, from the other angle on this next video. I've driven in the back part of the mountains trying to find uh, the back side of the cliffs. And I'm not sure exactly where and all, but in the distance there you can see some perpendicular cliffs. and that those aren't some of the protective uh, walls of Sardis. I'm sure they're uh, in that area and look very similar to it, but they built a wall up to that area uh, guarding their city, and that's the very place where the armies came in and took them because they were not vigilant. And even though I didn't know it at that time, I'm sure of it now. It is the, the uh, Mount Tumulus, and that's where the citadel was. Cyrus, when he took over that, he, he wanted to, uh, to protect himself, and so he made a law that the Lydians, the people of Sardis, uh, could not make weapons and made it illegal for them to make weapons. He told them they could create instruments, and he encouraged singing groups, and he encouraged uh, uh, acting groups. Uh, he encouraged commerce, and so there were a lot of businessmen, but there were a lot of people who just formed these little uh, bands and uh, acting groups, and so 
The result of this over time was the, the people of Sardis became soft, they became indolent, they became complacent. They just had a good time. You know, it's kind of live and let live. Let's, let's have a party. Let's sing some songs. Let's, let's uh, do these different things. And they were wealthy because of the, the commerce, but they were morally weak. In 17 AD, there was this massive earthquake. It's one of the biggest earthquakes that has ever occurred. It's, it's, it, I, I read online, I was looking at earthquakes, and it was like the eighth worst earthquake that has ever been recorded. It took that plateau where the citadel was, about 25 acres, and it, uh, 20 of those acres collapsed, killed thousands of people. And so there's just a small uh, uh, area up there. Sardis never fully recovered from this. Um, Tiberius gave them a tax holiday. It was under Roman rule at the time. Gave them a tax holiday for five years. Said, you don't have to pay taxes <clears throat> for five years uh, because you need your money to rebuild your city. <clears throat> and he actually, <clears throat> excuse me, he actually gave them the equivalent of over a million dollars to help them rebuild. But they never could. They could never rebuild their former glory. They became a second-rate city. Last, let me tell you about their religion. This goddess, let's put her up there. There she is. I've, I've read and heard and looked at different ways of pronouncing her name. Kibla, Sibla, Kubla. There's like five, six, seven different ways to pronounce her name. So just say, you can say whatever you want to. But Kibla is her name, was the goddess of the area. And everything I'm telling you connects with the scripture, okay? So this is not just history because we need a history lesson, but it's going to connect with the scripture in a little bit. This was the, she was the main deity. She came from the province of Phrygia, which is to the east, uh, and that, that was their only goddess uh, there. They called her the great, uh, the great mother we, uh, uh, of, of the earth. Uh, she was a fertility goddess. As she came, as her worship came into this area, it was combined with Artemis, which you will have remembered from, uh, from um, Ephesus and, and uh, up in uh, Pergamum and other places. But, uh, combined with her, and this is the temple of Artemis, uh, it was a huge temple, uh, over 300 feet long, over 160 feet wide, a massive temple. Uh, you can see the, the mountain in the background. Uh, but here's what I want you to remember. On a given day, each year, once a year, <clears throat> a parade would come along the main street of uh, Sardis. And this parade would start out with those who were devoted to Kibbeleh, to, to uh, show, to honor her. And they were all dressed in white, and they would begin with music and dancing, and uh, it would just become frantic and... Uh, uh, ecstatic dancing, jumping around, uh, just all sorts of things, and they'd take out knives and begin cutting themselves. And as they marched to this temple, as they came down to the temple, people would be on both sides of the ro road, and they would be, feel honored if the blood of these devotees would splash upon them. They were wearing white robes, parade of chaotic worship. So Sardis was a city that reveled in past glories. It was generally a lethargic place, basically a live and let live attitude in the, in the world around them. Everyone just went around their daily business, didn't bother each other, 
Just let your life, you live your life, I'll live my life. I'll strum my guitar, you strum your lyre. Jesus, to the church, to the angel of the church in Sardis. And then we have a description here of Jesus. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. If you remember in, when we were in chapter 1 and verse 4, and we see all these descriptions, they, they'll uh, connect back into chapter 1. We see the letter is written from the seven spirits. And as you read that, it, it, it says to me, we see the Son there, we see the Father there, and we see the Spirit there in chapter 1, verse 4. And at that point, it was speaking of the Holy Spirit, but here it says Jesus is holding the seven spirits. The literal word there is not holding, it's has. And I think that's important. He has the seven spirits. He's not holding them, he has it. He possesses, he has the seven spirits. David Roper, in his commentary, says this. He said, it's the most comforting description of Jesus in the seven letters. This is the most comforting of the descriptions of Jesus in all the seven letters. And as I thought about that, I thought, this is important because the consolation that they need is, is going to be especially needed for this church. And we'll see this in a minute. He has the complete spirit. What does that mean? The seven spirits. That's completeness. He has a complete spirit. Uh, the spirit is, the, is described as our comforter. He enables. He empowers. And as Jesus is saying here, listen, I comfort I enable you, I empower you, and I'm, I also have the seven uh, churches in my hand. And we saw that in our previous one where he's holding the seven churches. And so Jesus is speaking to the churches, and he's saying, listen, I'm the source of power. I want you, before I speak to you, before I say anything to you, I want you to know I am your source of power. I am your source of comfort. I hold you protectively. I want the best for each one of you. Most sermons I've heard, most commentaries I write, the uh, write, I read, I get the sense that the rebukes of Jesus, the rebukes that Jesus gives these churches, makes you feel like, I don't want to be around him. All right? I'm just going to be honest. That's the only way I know to be. To be honest that you read these things and you say, I don't want to be around that Jesus because the way it's presented to you is that Jesus is absolutely upset with you and he's about to send you to hell and so he's just jumping on your case and I don't know about you but when someone jumps on my case you know what I want to do I want to leave I want to be around that person even if I deserve it but here it's important to know that this is Jesus who is saying, whatever your problem is, and I know what your problem is, I have, you, I have the ability to help you through it. Whatever power you need to deal with this situation, I'm here to help you. Whatever comfort you need, whatever counsel you need, whatever you need to get beyond this sin, because I'm going to talk to you about a sin, I'm here. I think so many times we, we, we look at the, the thought of judgment as being merciless. Not merciful, but merciless. 
And yet Jesus is coming in judgment. He is coming in judgment. And he's proclaiming judgment on these people. And he's giving rebuke, but it's a rebuke of correction and love. And he says, I have what it takes to fix your situation here. You will not be left alone to take care of your problem. I am here. I am holding you. I'm here with the Spirit. I'm with you. And I think that's important because we'll just read over that quickly. And we won't even think about it. And this is one reason I've encouraged us all as we read the Scriptures to stop and to think. To stop and to think about what? There's a purpose for that. He holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. There's a purpose. And I think the purpose is that he says, I'm here to help you. I'm here to help you. He then says, I know. And if you're looking at your clock, you say, man, how are we going to finish this? We're not. We're going to continue this next week. But we're going we're gonna to go to the first two words of, chap, of, of verse 2. And that's all we're going to cover today. So don't, don't start worrying that you're going to get out at 1 o'clock. All right, a video. Let's, let's watch this, me talking. The letter to Sardis is concerning, it's frightening. They were the only, or they were, I'm not sure if the only, but they had no uh, commendation. It was only correction. And the correction was, uh, can speak really clearly to people today, Christians today, it says you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. And so I'm sure they thought they were alive, but uh, Jesus said they were, they were dead. And so we have a, a church that's active, is doing things, and has all these programs going on or whatever, and people consider them a, a, a active church, but they're actually dead and so he said oh, uh, I'm gonna come like a thief so you know wake up and that really spoke to this area right behind me is a mountain range and uh, when the city was here when the in this area the they had a wall up there and there's just a perpendicular cliff right behind it and they felt very secure so secure that they guarded the rest of the wall and just put a couple of sentries up there who who were kind of uh, sleepy on their jobs. And twice, over a period of several hundred years, uh, this city was captured because the force that was taking over the city climbed up that perpendicular cliff and over the wall and took the city. And so Jesus says, that's, that's kind of how you are. You're comfortable, you think everything's going well, uh, but you need to wake up. You need to wake up and do what you're been called to do. He says here, I know your deeds. I'm sitting there with the Sardis Christians listening. And I'm remembering when he says, I know your deeds, he said the same thing to the church in Ephesus. He said the same thing to the church in Thyatira. I know your energy. I know your, that's where we get our, our word energy from. In Thyatira, I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance. Ephesus, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. And it made me wonder, what are these Christians about to think? They're, they're listening to Jesus, and he says, I know, I know your deeds. I know the things you're doing. And then they must have thought, how is he going to commend us now? What's he, what's he going to say, just like he said to these other Christians? And then the hammer drops. You have a reputation 
of being alive. What's a reputation? A reputation is what, other think, what others think you are. But character is what you really are. Some have said reputation is based on what others see you doing. Character is based on what you do when nobody is seeing you. And literally it says, you have a name. What does it say in the NIV here? You have a reputation. Literally it is, you have a name. And I've said this many times from the pulpit, the word name in the Bible refers to character. Anytime it says the name of, it's talking about a person's character. And it says the name of Jesus, in other words, refers to his character. The name of Sardis refers to their character. You have a reputation, you have a name. While Jesus has the churches, he says, Sardis has a name. And their name that everyone knew was alive. That was the name. That was the reputation. That's what everyone thought of. When they thought of the church of Sardis, they thought, alive, this church is alive. And I thought, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be an alive church? And I don't know what it meant in the, in the first century. But today, it usually means that we have a lot of organized activity. There's a lot of things going on. Did this church have programs? I don't know. But that's what it means for, for us. And a live church is filled with programs. We have a great team program. We have a great program for our retirees. It's called Sunrisers. They meet on Thursdays. It's wonderful. We have a great uh, young marriage program. We have our children's program, our uh, uh, summer series, summer program on Wednesdays. Wonderful program. We're always busy. You come here at, uh, you come here on a Tuesday, and you'll see activity at the church building. If, you, if you've ever come here on a Tuesday or a Thursday or Friday, a non-church day, there's usually something going on around here. Things are happening. And you look at it and say, you know, we're alive. This place is alive. The things are happening here. And all these things are good. I'm not criticizing anything that we're doing. But I'm just saying that when Jesus looked at the activity of Sardis, and he looked at the Christians at Sardis. In the middle of all their deeds and their work and their activity, he said, you look alive, but you're dead. And I thought, my goodness, this is their true character. Their true character is dead. Their name is really dead. And, and it must have, as I sat with these Sardis Christians thinking about it, I said, it must have just, for some of them, must have shocked them. You know, that feeling that you get when you're sitting there and you're expecting someone to say something good and, and, it, and they don't? And it's just, a, you get this shock and you, you wonder if it was a physical, you know, movement of your body. It's just, you feel that shock inside of you. And I wonder if, if some of them, if it brought tears to some of their eyes, I wonder. And I wonder if others thought, yeah, I've known that for years. This is what I suspected for years. This is, and it's devastating. It must have been devastating to them. Because what can you do if you're dead? What can Nothing. Nothing. You can do nothing. If you're dead, the only thing that can happen is grieving. That's it. And so we go back to that first verse and remember who Jesus is. This is the Christ who holds the seven spirits. 
the sevenfold spirit of God. Isaiah 11, I mentioned this several weeks ago, where it talks about the sevenfold spirit of God. It said he rests on Jesus, full of wisdom, full of understanding, counsel, power, knowledge, and walking in an intimate relationship with God. That's what Isaiah 11 verse 2 is talking about. And it says, you're dead. And what can they do? They can't bring themselves out of dead. But he says, but I'm the one who is holding you. I have you. You're dead, and I have you. And then the next two words, wake up. I wanted to really yell that out just in case someone was asleep. <laughs> wake up! <laughs> and that's what Jesus does here. He says, wake up. And if you think about this, put yourself there. This is an imperative. This is a command from Jesus. This is the Christ that called Lazarus from the dead. He called him out of the tomb, and he raises his voice to the Sardis Christians, and he says, wake up! What does a dead person do when the Christ says, wake up? Mm. Now can you see a little bit of the encouragement? It's not that they're dead and they got to do a lot of stuff to get alive. You can't do anything to get alive. The very first thing you have to do, and there are some things they have to do. We'll look at that next week. They do do some things, all right? But the very first thing they have to do is have the resurrected Christ resurrect them and wake them up from the dead. And, I, and I'm going to apply this next week more, but I've, I was thinking of myself in this situation and how sometimes I feel dead. You ever feel dead spiritually? Do you ever feel dead spiritually? It's not just me, is it? And you sit there and say, well, I, I, just, I don't have the... The zeal, I don't have the love, I don't have what I want to have, and I feel dead. And you know what I do? I create a program. I do something. I, and I'm, trying to, I'm trying to make myself alive. <laughs> and again, we got to go back in here. This is a Christ-centered message. You remember I said why I spent five lessons in chapter one? It's to remind you this is Christ-centered. And so when we get to these things that we got to do, we got to remember it's not me doing them, it's God working through me. It's a resurrected Christ commanding us to wake up. One day in 1 Thessalonians, it says one day he's going to come again, and it says with a loud command. And reading that passage, I'm not sure if it's a loud command that's coming from God or if it's coming from Jesus or if it's coming from the archangel. I don't know, but all I know is it's coming in the power of God, whichever way it comes. But the loud command wakes up the dead. And that will literally happen one day. These people had not only fallen asleep, they were dead. The soldiers who climbed up that mountain and went over, if there was a couple of soldiers there who were asleep, they were dead when they finished with them. That's what soldiers do, right? You, know, you go across the road uh, over the, the, the mountain, the wall, and you see enemy soldiers and they're asleep. You don't wake them up. You, know, you kill them. That's it. And that's what happened to these people. And they couldn't do nothing. And Jesus says, wake up. You went to sleep, and you died in your sleep, and I'm here to say, wake up. I'm going to close with looking at two passages quickly in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. And I want to say this. There's two types of dead people here in this audience today. 
There are some of you who are dead to Christ. You've never come into a relationship with him. You're described as dead. And you're sitting there saying, oh, I can do this, I can do that. Okay. I'm telling you you're dead. And the reason I can tell you that is because the scripture says you're dead. And there's some of you who, are, who have struggled with your faith and you've just gone to sleep. And it's time to wake up. And you're dead too. And the only hope we have is for Christ to wake us up. Chapter 2, verse 1, as for you of Ephesians, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. This is the condition you're in before you come into a relationship with him. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. This is, this is death going on. All of us also lived among them at one time. Paul puts himself there. Gratifying the cravings of our flesh, of our sinful nature, of our emotions. Following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. We had nothing but judgment to come. But because of his great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. Woo! It's by grace you've been saved. That's, what, that's really how he said it. They just didn't know how to write woe. But that's really that, that's a hallelujah phrase there. When he's thinking about what he did, he said, man, it was grace that we've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ. When did he do that? Romans chapter 6 talks about being buried in Christ and being raised, buried in Christ in baptism, raised to walk a new life. That's what he's talking about there. He raised you up with Christ, seated us with him. Here's, here's the yummy part. He seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That's where we are right now. That's yummy. Thank you, child, whoever said that. In order that in the coming ages he might show the in comparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ. We're just going to be on display for eternity saying, look, there's grace. And again, another hallelujah phrase. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of yourself. You can't do anything when you're dead. It's the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. Chapter 5, verse 8. For you were once darkness, going back to where you were. But now, listen, you're light. This is your true self. So since you're light, live as children of light. For the fruit of light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Live that way, is what he's saying. And how do you do that? Find out what pleases the Lord. Get your mind working. Figure out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness, get away from that. Get away from the world. Rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. There are some things I did not tell you about what went on with the worship of Sibla, Kibla. You know why? Because it's so awful, it's, it's shameful to mention it. I would not mention it in a public setting like this. But everything... Exposed by the light becomes visible, for the light makes everything visible. That is why I said, wake up. Wake up, O sleeper. This may have been a song, one of their first songs. Wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. I think this is talking to Christians who are asleep. 
I think this is talking to Christians who are dead. And they would sing this song. The, maybe the Sardis Christians got this letter, and they remembered this song, and they sang after they read through the book of what we call the book of Revelation. They sang this song together. Wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. If you're out of Christ, wake up. Wake up, because it's just darkness and death there. And if you're a Christian who's gone to sleep, wake up. Wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead. Next week, we're going to find out a little bit more how to do that. But I just want to...